theyeshiva.net. Okay, welcome, Tayyida Yiddish Kindelach. Welcome, dear precious children, joining us virtually, globally, from all over the world in a very special moment of chizuk, of unity, of inspiration. I want to thank all of you for joining us. I speak to you here live, quarantined in my home in Muncie, New York. And I want to thank all of the special children. I know so many of you have been home. It's been a long week. For some of you, it's been yet more than a week. We have our children joining us from Eretz Yisrael, from the Holy Land. Welcome. We have our children joining us from all over the United States of America and from different parts of the world, different time zones, different hours, and bruchim abayim, welcome to all of you. I'm going to share with you today three stories, three very special stories for me that I think would be very geschmack and delightful for all of you to hear. However, before I begin the stories, I do want to say that we're going to take questions and comments, any of the children who wants to ask any question on your mind or on your heart, or you want to share a comment or you want to share some feedback, let me give you, let me give you a telephone number. And this telephone number is going to come, bring the messages to me. So you could text all of your questions to this telephone number, 845 777 4707. That's 845 777 4707. You could text anything you would like, any question, any comment, any feedback, anything you would like to add. And Blinader, towards the end of the program, I'm going to share what you write, try to answer your questions. It could be really whatever you want. We're going to have another children's program, Be'ezer Hashem, on Sunday, the following Sunday. 4 o'clock p.m., the same time. We're going to do it a few times over the next week, but today we're having it, and then again Sunday at 4 p.m., and you're welcome to come. And those of you who are children at heart, even if on the passport you're not a child, but you're lucky to be a child at heart, you're also welcome to join, even if you're a Zaidi and a Bubby and a Tati and a Mami. Everything will be streamed live right here on theyeshiva.net www.theyeshiva.net You can also ask all your questions at 845-777-4707 I'm getting used to I'm getting used to this system as well Somebody just wrote to me My kids are watching and will hopefully give me a break So I hope you're good Okay Well I hope that you get a <laughs> a wonderful break and I'll ask your children to treat you very respectfully and very nicely. So, Kindelach, what's happening now is something that's really unprecedented. It never happened in my lifetime, and it never happened in the lifetime of people who are even older than I am. One day, God willing, you will tell your grandchildren about the coronavirus outbreak that came from China and arrived in the United States of America and other parts of the world at the end of 2019, 2020. Today is Thursday, March 19th, 2020, 23rd day of other, 5780 Pay. Most of you or all of you have been out of school for a long time. You're in your home. Families are together with tatis and mommies and brothers and sisters and 
It's not an easy time. It's a very special time. It's a very unique time. It's very, very important, my dear Kinderlach, that all of us use this time in the most productive fashion. It's a great time to bond with your family like never before. Tati is home all day and all night. Mommy is home all day, all night. All your brothers and sisters are home all day and all night. It's your own unique nuclear family, not even extended family. This is a very, very special time. I know sometimes we get on each other's nerves. There's a lot of fighting. We're not always listening, but it's very important at this time to use the time well. Learn a lot of Torah and do a lot of mitzvahs and great davening and uh, do favors to your siblings. Begin The mitzvah of Avis Yisrael and respecting your father and mother begins at home. And have fun. Enjoy life together. This is a time, apparently, Hashem, wanted us to spend a lot of time in our homes, building ourselves up and our families up. Do you remember the mitzvah that Hashem gave the Jewish people the night before they left Mitzrayim? What was the mitzvah Hashem gave the Jews the night before they left Mitzrayim? In Parsha's boy, Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jews, Va'atem loy ish mi Pesach beisoy ad boiker. I don't want anybody going out of the door of his home until morning. Isn't that exactly the mitzvah that you received a few days ago? Nobody should leave the home until the morning, until the sun shines on us, until there's a new bright morning on this planet, when this coronavirus is under control and not wreaking such havoc and damage in so many people's lives. May God bring healing and recovery to everyone who needs it and to our whole world. And what happened in that morning? They left their homes and they also left Egypt. So let's daven and pray and hope that when our doors open up and we go out to the morning, it shouldn't only be a morning of more recovery and more health over the whole wor- around the world. We can go back to schools. We can go back to our shuls. We can go back to our communities. Your tati can go back to work. Your mommy can go wherever she has to go to work or elsewhere. But it'll also be the ultimate morning, the ultimate light. With the Geula, when we'll have the ultimate light. Amen. And at these moments, I have to share with you three incredible stories. The first story was used to be told by the famous legendary Mashgiach of the Mir Yeshiva. Rabbi Rucham Lebovitz, Zechet Tzadik Levrachu, passed away in Tofresh Tzadik Vav. June, June 1936, I think, he was the mashgiach, the spiritual mentor at the famous yeshiva demir in Lithuania before the Second World War. When he passed away in 1936, he was succeeded by the famous mashgiach, Rabchatzko Levenstein. This is a story that Rabbi Yeruchim used to share. And the story goes like this. There was a city in Germany called Leipzig. Leipzig is a very well-known city in Jewish history. First of all, there were many Jews who lived in Leipzig in Germany, but Leipzig was known for another reason. It was a place where there, were every, there was every year a huge yirid. A yirid is a marketplace, meaning people would come from all over Europe and vendors would come to Leipzig with their merchandise that they would put on display. And people who were running businesses factories or different types of companies in their cities and shtetlach all over Europe, wherever they lived, would have to come to Leipzig to check out all of the merchandise, just like they have today 
jewelry shows and clothes shows and other types of shows. This was like, and all the people who deal with those businesses come to these shows because this is where you meet the people. This is where you find what's out on the market and you could bring it back and make your money and sell it to the people there. Leipzig was one of those well-known international cities where people would come for a Yerid once a year or twice a year. And there was a Jew, his name was Reb Dov Eisenman. Reb Beryl, Beryl Eisenman. Beryl Eisenman would go every year to Leipzig. He was a very affluent and successful and also a God-fearing and honest person. One year, instead of Dov Eisenman going to Leipzig, his wife, Hanaleya, went to Leipzig. And Hanaleya went on this long journey from the city where she lived with her husband. She arrived in Leipzig. She uh, came to her hotel, she unpacked her suitcase, and she went to check out the Yerid. This was her first time ever in Leipzig. All the merchants, all the vendors saw her. They wondered why her husband wasn't there. Well, her husband had surgery, and he was bedridden, he was ill, so there was no way he could physically come to Leipzig, and that's why, in desperation, he sent his wife, who arrived here for the first time, the vendors didn't mind. Rebetala Eisenman had a splendid, he had a sterling reputation of honesty and that Baruch Hashem, he has money and he was a successful Jew. And they treated his wife with the utmost respect and dignity and they showed her what we call creme de la creme. You know, every vendor knows that for this customer, you have to show the best because they want it and they're capable of paying for it. And they gave her the same treatment they gave her husband. They were in the business of fabrics and clothes, um, soft goods, dry goods, clothes, fabrics. So all of the the stylists and all of the designers would bring their fabrics and their materials there and their new types of clothes and garments. And they showed her the best. And they gave her the price. And she went from vendor to vendor. It took a few days. And it was absolutely successful. She found exactly what her husband wanted. She found exactly what they needed. The prices made sense. She had the money. It was really marvelous. In fact, she completed her mission a few days before the Yerid was over. She was so excited. She came back to hotel. She was serene, relaxed. She didn't realize it would work out so well. Berile initially was very hesitant to send his wife because... She didn't really have experience, but because of his surgery, he really had no choice. Now, today, you could take a phone, and you could communicate, and you can call if there's a question. I know when I go shopping in the store, my wife gives me a list, and I usually can't find the items. I'm not that good with shopping in the groceries, even though I go. So I give a call, you text, and you say, what do you want me to get? That opportunity didn't exist at the time. You had to send a letter, and the letter took a long time to get there. By that time, the Yerid was over. But he drew a map for her before she left, and he explained to her everything that's going on, and he knew most of the names of the vendors, and he discussed with her all of the details, hoping that with God's grace it would work out, and indeed it worked out perfectly. Now the system was that for a few days she would examine all the merchandise, get the price, make a list of it, and then before she would leave, she would actually go and pick up the merchandise that she needed and pay for it. This was the last day after she would pick up all the fabrics and materials and she would head home. Excitingly and with a sense of accomplishment and gratitude, she 
took her purse and went to the vendors in order to pay up. It was a good day for her. The sun was shining physically and emotionally. Besides, she also had a surprise for her husband because she even met a new guy, what you call a new kid on the block, a new stylist, a new designer who came out with a whole new type of fabric. This was a whole new a whole new uh, new uh, a new uh, merchandise new item to offer in the market and their their market was an affluent market and she found this and she thought her husband would love it and uh, this fellow really appreciated the business and he made a great deal with her and she was so excited anyway she comes to the first vendor who already put away the material for Hanaleya Eisenman all she needed was to pick it up and pay for it the first vendor's name was Yosef Shester. Ayid in Leipzig, a lot of Jews. It was full of Jews, Leipzig was full. The Yid was full of Jews. There were many of the famous G'dayli Yisrael who did also business in Leipzig. They're well known, but that's for a different, a different class, different program. She takes all the materials from this Rabbi Yosef Shester, but when she puts her hand in the purse to take out the money, the money is gone. She searches everywhere. She's digging, looking everywhere. The money is gone. She's, she traces back her steps from the hotel. Maybe she'll find it. It's gone. She goes back to her hotel room. Looks on the bed, under the mattress, in the bathroom, under the chair, at the closets. Maybe It's gone. It's gone. What happened? Did somebody steal it? Somebody pickpocket her. Did somebody break into the room? Did she lose it somewhere? She couldn't figure out what happened. And she understood this was a tragedy for her because they were affluent people, but they didn't have infinite wealth. And her husband always would save up the money that was necessary to purchase the merchandise. And this was all the money he saved up, which was exactly enough. And now it was all gone. The poor woman was devastated. She was shattered. She was broken. She could barely catch her breath. And Rabbi Yossel Shester saw the situation. And he comforted her. And he said, listen, we know your husband. He's an honest man. He's a God-fearing man. Don't worry. We trust you. Take the materials and you'll mail us the money. You'll send us the money with a messenger. The other vendors calmed her down. Don't worry. We'll give you credit. This was two of a good client to lose. And he was a very trusted human being. They really trusted his loyalty. Gewaldic, great. But for her, this was not comfort. She knew she has to come back to her husband and tell her she lost the money. She knew they didn't have extra cash. They were successful. They didn't have extra cash. They always had to be invested in the business. And what would her husband say? And how could she do this to him? She also noticed there was a hole in her pocketbook. And that's when she realized what happened. Nobody stole it. Basically, there was a hole in her, in her purse. And the entire, she had all the money, all the cash she had stacked up and it was tied with a, with a string. And she realized that it just all slipped out through the hole and it was gone. She couldn't get herself to go home like this. She was so broken. And then she decided to do one last thing. She's going to put up signs all over the Yerid in Leipzig. Now, Leipzig was a big city filled with Jews, but mostly non-Jews. And write that she lost a significant amount of money, give some identifying signs, and hope, hope, beyond hope, 
There was nothing more. Hope that one good, honest, God-fearing Jew would see the sign. Hope that maybe he found the money and his conscience would tell him, go and give it back. She put up signs all over Leipzig in all the Jewish communities, the shuls and in the marketplace in Leipzig, telling the story briefly and asking anybody who found her money near the hotel or in the Yerid to please return it to Chana Leia Eisenman. She gave her address in the hotel. Frankly, she didn't expect that the person who found the money would see the sign. And even if he would see the sign would decide to return the money to her. After all, most of the city, as I said, was not even Jewish. Lo and behold, she had mazel. A fellow appeared. He found the stack of cash. He found all the money. His name, Yoinesen Bergilovich. Yoinesen Bergilovich was a Jew, a bentoira, he knew a halacha. He was a serious Jew. He found the money. He came to her and he said, I was walking. I found this. She was so excited. You know how excited she was? Can I have it? Yonason Bergelovitz says to her, No. Halachically, I do not have to give it to you. She says, why not? You know it's mine. I gave you simonim. I gave you signs. Now all you kindalach who learned Ela Metziyas and Masech the Baba was Yohannesen right or wrong? What did Yohannesen tell her? I want you to think for a moment on your own. What did Yohannesen tell her? Why doesn't he have to give her back the money even though it's hers? Yohannesen said, this was found in a private domain or a public domain? It was found in a Rishu Sarabim, in a public domain, where thousands of people go. Most of the people are Jews or non-Jews. Non-Jews. If you lose money in such a public domain, do you give up hope or you don't give up hope? Do you think, ah, a Jew who knows Elam and who knows about the mitzvah of Ashavah Saveda, when you find something that's lost, you have to return it. Is he or she going to find it? Or probably statistically, if you have 90% who don't even know about the mitzvah of Hashavah Saveda, they may not even be Jewish. 90% not Jewish and 10% Jewish or whatever the percentage is. So statistically, you don't think you're ever going to get it back. This is a concept in Allah known as Yish. You give up. You despair. You despair. Oy vey, I'm never going to get back this money. I mean, you hope that miracles should happen. But frankly, practically speaking, you don't think it's going to happen. And what's the halacha? When an owner loses something and is meyayish, he or she gives up hope that they're ever going to find it again, halachically, that disassociation relinquishes their legal ownership over it. And if I find it, I'm allowed to keep it. I'm not called a thief. I mean, if I want to give it back, that's wonderful. I can give you a gift. I can give it back. But I don't have to give it back because you're not considered the owner. Again, it's a beautiful thing. But legally, there's no moral obligation. You could take me to court in Besden and be of me to give you back the money. Why? Because you relinquished ownership. How did you relinquish ownership? You didn't want to. But by despairing, by losing hope that you're ever going to have it, you basically disconnected yourself from it. You don't think it's yours anymore because you don't have it anymore. And legally, 
The person who finds it is allowed to take it, even if you discover who it is, because it's likely that you're not going to discover who it is. This is called Yush. Rabbi Yohannesson Berglovich says, Ma'am, Mrs. Eisenman, did you believe that you would find this? Did you believe that a Jew would find this and look for the Simonim and give it back? You did not. In such a society, in such a reality, in such a public domain, where most of the people are not Jews, therefore I do not have to give you back this money. The poor woman was now even more shattered. Imagine, she has the money, but she can't get it. And she said, that's Geneva, that's thievery, give me back my money, you're a Ganeth. And he said, let's go to the Rav. Tell him the story. And you will see that I am right halachically. I am not a thief. I'm doing it and I'm right. <laughs> they went to the Rav. You know who the Rav was? It was a rabbi visiting Leipzig at the time. He was considered one of the greatest rabbis and sages of his generation. Rabbi Yitzchok Elchonon Spector Zechid Sadik Levrocha, the Kovner Rav. He was the rabbi of Kovne, Lithuania, but he was considered one of the greatest sages, halachic authorities, not only in Lithuania, but in all of Eastern Europe. The Kovne Rav, Rabbi Khanan passed away in Tofresh Nun Vav, I believe, around 1896. He was visiting Leipzig. The man, Yoinesen Bergelovich, says to her, let's go to the Kovne Rav, Rabbi Khanan Spectre. They come to the Yitzchakal Chanon. She tells the story. Rabbi Yehoinus and Bergelovich says his story. And he looks at the Rav and he says, Rebbe, tell her the halacha. I do not owe her anything. I am not obligated to give her even a pruta, even a mark, even a shekel, even a ruble. Whatever the currency she was using there in Leipzig. I assume it was the German currency of the time. Tell her. And the Kovner Rav, Inspector, thought for a moment. He looked at them both and he said, Chanaleya, you are right. You're actually making an error. You need to give her the entire money. And she said, why? Rebbe, why? Why? And he said these words. She is a shliach of her husband. She is an emissary of her husband. She came here representing her husband. She has no right to be miyayish on the money without his consent, without his permission. And he never found out about this story yet. She is working for him. She is representing him. He gave her the money to do the business on his behalf. The fact that she despaired of the money, she does not have the power to despair on the Meshaleach's behalf, on the one who sent her on her husband's behalf. If she would have called him and sent him a letter and said what happened, and he despaired, okay? But he never despaired over the money. She doesn't have a right to be Zechmeyayish for him. He never told her to be Meyayish. He doesn't even know what happened. Now, 
Because he doesn't even know what happened. He's far away in a bed. He had surgery. He's not in Leipzig. So here we have a fascinating case. All of you know the case. What's it called? Yush Shaloi Midas. If you lose money, but you did not know that you lost the money. If you would have known, you may have had the spirit, but you don't know that you lost it. You're in another city. You don't know that your wife in Leipzig lost the money. Is this called Yish or not Yish? In potential, you might have the spirit, but in reality, you did not because you don't know that you lost the money. So in reality, you never gave up hope over the money. Abaya and Rav have an argument in the of and El And this is one of the six places in Shas where the halacha is like Abaya, not like Rav. Usually when Abaya and Rav debate, the law is like Rav. But there are six exceptions, right? Ya'el Kegam. One of them is Yud, Yiyush. In Yiyush, the halacha is like Abaya. What does Abaya say? Yiyush Midas, if you despair. But you don't know it. Meaning, there's no awareness. You don't know you lost the money. It's not called Yiyush Loishmei Yiyush. Bedela Eisenman never the spirit of the money, and therefore you are obligated to give back the money to Hanalea Eisenman so she should be able to give it to her husband. Hanalea got back the money and she brought it back to Bedela Eisenman in the shtetl where they live to be able to continue their business successfully. The Mashgiach of the Mir Yeshiva, Rabbi Ruchim Lebevitz, told over the story. And he said, you hear Kindelach, you hear Bochrim, you hear students. We are all Shluchim. We are all messengers of Hashem in this world. We are all ambassadors of the Rebbe Neshaloylam. Hashem sent each and every one of you and each and every one of us down to this world and He gave us a shlichus and He gave us a mission. And He said, you represent Him. And as long as you're here, He did not give up on you and He did not give up on your mission. And even if you think that you there's lost opportunities and things that are lost, the Master never ever gave up on the shlichus. I want to quote to you the way Rabbi Ruchim would say this to his students. A friend of mine sent me. Rabbi Ruchim would say in the Mir Yeshiva, you hear Bachrim? A shliach doesn't have the right to despair. We are shluchim in this world. We are ambassadors of Hashem in this world. Sometimes you look at your life and you want to give up. You're miserable. You get depressed. You give up on yourself. I'm not successful. I'm not progressing. There's so many challenges. There's things that are bothering me. I have anxiety. You don't have a right to despair and to be zich misyayish, even if you think that's the only option now. Because you are representing Hashem in this world and He never ever gives up on you, on your soul, on your body, on your life, on your success, on your happiness. Ah, you lost everything, you're going home broke. Hashem never ever gives up. Ever, never gives up on you. And this is true right now. Some of us, it's a little difficult. You're quarantined. Some of you are bored. No, many of you are happy not to be in school, although many of the schools are continuing beautifully and you're learning wonderfully, but sometimes it's hard. 
But I want you always to remember whose power you have, whose energy you have. Yabi Ruchim said, you represent Hashem. If you represent Hashem, the Gemara says in Kiddushim, Shluchai Shal Adam Kemaisai. A messenger represents the one who sends him. So you have all the power in the world, all the confidence in the world. You're invincible, you're indestructible. Your soul is a piece of Hashem, is a chelikilakamimal. You represent Hashem in this world. You are infinity in this world, and therefore you have the power to prevail under all circumstances, to keep your spirits. Never ever give up hope, never ever relinquish your joy, even if you're looking at a situation and all there is to do is yish. For this you have to remember what the Heleke Ruzhin Rebbe of Ruzhin said, Yiyush Shaloimi Das. Yiyush by a Jew can only be if there's no Das, if there's no awareness when you know who you are. There's no Yiyush. Why? Because you're a Shliach. You don't have the right to be Zechmiyayish. It's not my money. My body doesn't belong to me. My soul doesn't belong to me. My life doesn't belong to me. It's a gift. I am a gift. You're a gift. Hashem sent down a piece of himself into this world. He never gave up. You're a piece of Hashem in this world. No yish kindelach. No despair. It may be challenging. It may be difficult. Sometimes I cry. Sometimes I'm in pain. But keep that hope. Keep that faith. Keep that spirit going. Now I want to share with you another story. But let me see if there are any questions. And we'll take them. Because everybody could send in questions. Let me give you the number themselves. Let me give you the number. You can ask any questions or give any feedback. I see a lot of comments here. Thank you for all the comments and the words of praise and the compliments. But now we're going to look if there are if there are any questions. So you could text 845-777-4707. 845-777-4707. You could text all your questions about this or anything else. And God willing, I will respond to it. The person wants to know what is the source of the story. The source of the story, I'll tell you right now. I'll tell you right now. A friend of mine by the name of Mendel Hanen sent it to me a few days ago. And his mother sent it to him. She read it in Hamodia in Israel, the Israeli newspaper Hamodia, many, many years ago. And she preserved a copy for it, a copy of it. And he sent it to me now. So that's the story I'm sharing with you. That's the source of the story. I can't authenticate it anymore. The story comes with all of the names that I shared with you. So now, let's move on to the next story. Okay? I want to welcome all the Kindalach who have joined us. I know many of you have joined us once again. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been a long week. We're all in the same boat. We're all in this together. I want you to know what you're doing in your house, I'm doing in my house, my children are doing in our house, in our house here. Keep the simcha, keep the amuna, keep the betachin. It's a serious time. This coronavirus is a very serious virus. Hashem should protect all of us, all of you. Stay healthy, stay quarantined. We have to curb this virus. But as every crisis, there's also tremendous opportunities here. Utilize this time. This is a time you're going to remember. Utilize the time well. It's a very special time for Torah 
for Avoida, for Gemilas Chasadim, for Torah, for Tefillah, for Tzedakah, for Avas Yisrael, for Mitzvahs, for respecting Tati and Mami, for bonding with your family. Be nice to your little sisters. Be nice to your little brothers. And little brothers and sisters, be nice to your older brothers and older sisters. Because sometimes the younger ones really run the show. Be nice. Be sensitive. Be respectful. It's a great time to learn how to live together. When families learn how to live together and trust each other, it's the best preparation for life. Good marriages come from good childhoods. When you have learn how to live with your parents and your family, you respect each other's space, but you also preserve your own space and your own boundaries. Sit around the meal, share your stories, share your experiences, have fun together, schmooze together, sing together, dance together, put somebody on the keyboard and dance together. Celebrate together, speak together, learn together, daven together. I assume you're already fighting together, so I don't have to tell you to do that. I assume you're also arguing with each other. You're good Jewish children. But I'm saying in addition to that, enjoy each other, celebrate. Celebrate with each other. Okay, we have our children from London. We have our children from Eretz Yisrael. We have children from Australia. Oops. We have children from Australia. Wow, we have children, mamish from all over the world. It's a very, very special moment. All of us here together, dedicating ourselves to strengthen to strengthen each other with Avas Yisrael and with Achdus Yisrael. I'm now going to share with you another story. Somebody wrote, can you do this program again? I'm really enjoying this. Well, we're in the middle of the program. Why do you ask me about the next program? Enjoy it now. But yes, we're going to have it again Sunday, 4 o'clock p.m. Right here at theyeshiva.net, Sunday, 4 o'clock p.m. Come back. Okay. Question, how can anyone give up hope if everything is part of Hashem? <laughs> You're a very smart child. Givaldik, I'm so happy you're asking this question because we're not all, we don't always feel this way. The Yetzirah inside of me doesn't want me to always feel that I'm part of Hashem. The Yetzirah sometimes tells me I'm a bad person, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I'm unsuccessful, I'm not part of Hashem, I don't have all the strength that I need. The Yetzirah sometimes tells me to do things that are alien to my true essence, to my true identity, to my true purpose, to my true core. As a, as, as a shliach of Hashem, as a soldier of Hashem, as a representative of Hashem. That's, you're, you're exactly right. But when somebody becomes aware of that, then there's no yish. Also remember, sometimes people go through difficulties in life. You know, Baruch Hashem, you're sitting here with your family. You're in your house with a mommy and a tati. Some people are alone. They're in a home alone. And it's not easy. It's not difficult. It's very difficult. Sometimes people have different painful situations in life. Some people have fallen very ill because of this corona. So in life, there's sometimes situations where there's a voice inside of us that tells us to give up. Some of you know that some relatives in your family sometimes give up. You give up. And it's a very normal part of the human condition. And that's what Rabbi Rucham was teaching, that by a Jew, there's no Yiyush. Yiyush said the original, Shaloi Midas. It means you have no Das. When you say, Das. The first das is no yish. Okay, a question coming in from Heshi. Heshi, hi Heshi. Heshi is five years old. 
And five-year-old Heshi texted me a question. Rabbi Jacobson, why didn't the man want to give the money? You know, as I was telling the story, I had the same question. <laughs> why did the man give her such a hard time? I am so proud of you, Heshi, that you have this question. I'm proud of you. The fact that you don't understand why the man didn't want to give her back the money, that is very, very special. I have another question. Why did he come to her to tell her that he has the money if he didn't want to give it back to her? That, that, that I don't understand. Why, why, did he, why did he tell her? If you don't want to give her back the money, don't tell her that you have the money and then make her feel bad. Very, very strange. I don't know the answer for this. I'll just speculate. I'll speculate what I think. Um, my speculation is that uh, maybe Yoinison was ready to give her back a little bit of the money, but not all of the money. Maybe that's what happened. That's why he showed up. Uh, maybe it just happened to be that she encountered him. Maybe she was searching for the money. Maybe she you know, put up a sign and she happened to meet him. And he said, oh, I found this money. You know, sometimes that happens. You say, oh, does anybody know? Oh, I know, I know, I know that I have found the money. So give it back to me. He says, no, I'm not giving it back to you. The reason why he didn't want to give back the money, Hashi, is because sometimes people <laughs> feel that if I made a lot of money and I don't have to give it back to you, why should I give it back to you? Even if it's the nice thing to do and it's a wonderful thing to do, but if I'm not obligated to do it, then I don't have to do it. So I did, he didn't want to do it. He wanted to keep the money for himself. That's sometimes an emotion that people have. It's a very human emotion, and that's why there are halachas about it. If everybody would always have the emotion to share, then so much of halacha would not be relevant. Just be nice to people, be kind to people, go beyond the letter of the law. The reason we need law is because sometimes people's emotions take them in different places, and sometimes we're not even sure what's right and what's wrong, and that's why we have halacha. And halacha means, even if I'm not in the mood of it, and even if I want to keep the money for myself, but the Shulchan Aruch tells us that the will of Hashem is to give up the money. So that's very, very valuable. Heshi, I'm very proud of you for your question. Let me continue now, my dearest Kindelach, with the next, with the next, uh, the next story. Okay, some wonderful questions here. <laughs> I'm laughing, I'll tell you some why. But I'm going to deal with these questions later. We are here from Israel, all the Kinderlach from Israel. All my children are enjoying it immensely. We were planning to come to New York for Pesach. And now all the plans are out of the window. And there's a lot of disappointment. We are very disappointed. We were so looking forward to come to the United States, to New York for Pesach. Okay, excellent. Thank you for sharing this. I'm so happy you're on with us. And yes, a lot of disappointment. A lot of people's Pesach plans. I was supposed to be Pesach in Italy. <laughs> I was supposed to be Pesach in Stressa, Italy. And my family and I were also very disappointed. I know somebody, a friend of mine here, who lives nearby, supposed to be in Eretz Yisrael for Pesach. By his family. And he was very disappointed. And... I was supposed to be today at a wedding of such a close relative of mine, of a niece of mine. And the wedding is not far from here. And I can't tell you the disappointment. It's a very, very, very difficult time. It's very challenging. But I'm now going to tell you a second story 
that I think is going to be very, very uh, inspirational and very powerful. I'm going to take more questions soon. This story was shared by the Jew who it happened to, and it's a very moving story. I happen to know this person. His name was Reb Mendel Futefas. Reb Mendel Futefas was a Russian Jew, a Chassid, and he was sent to Siberia for 14 years. Most people sent to Siberia didn't survive. Siberia was one of the gulags, the work camps that the communist Bolshevik regime created. Millions and millions of people were sent to the gulags in Siberia and other places and they could not survive. First of all, the cold. It could get there 70 below zero and worse. The illness, malnutrition, the environment in which they live, the barracks, the hard labor, or they were just shot and killed. But from all of these horrific circumstances, most of them did not survive. Reb Mendel Futafaz was exiled to Siberia for 14 years. I knew him after he came out of Russia. He managed to get out of the Soviet Union in the 1960s. And then I met him in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. I used to fabring with him a lot. He was a very special Jew. A real Yirei Shamayim. By him, Yiddishkeit was engraved in every fiber of his being. And he was a smart man, he was a wise man. And he went through so much of life, he had so many difficult experiences when he would speak. You knew you're speaking to a person that every word he paid a price for. Things were not superficial. And Reb Mendel once shared the following story. The story left such an impression on me. It's such a powerful approach in life. He says it was one night, we were in the barrack in Siberia. And what would they do? A lot of schmoozing, a lot of conversations. What do people do when they're quarantined in a barrack? They didn't have much to do there. And let's remember, they did not have the comforts that we have. You know, let's remember, some of our parents were drafted to war. We were told to stay in our houses and sit on the couch. We can do it. Sometimes it's challenging, but we can do it. And this is our shlichus now. This is what God wants. We do it, and we do it with simcha. Because this is Ratzon Hashem. But they're quarantined in a barrack and they're schmoozing. And what are they talking about? So one of the people says, the good old days. He was an actor in Russia. He wasn't Jewish. He was an actor. Very popular actor. And he was exiled to Siberia. The other one was a military general. He was imprisoned, tortured, exiled to Siberia. The other one was a professor, a journalist, a priest, a businessman, a writer, a novelist, an essayist, a lawyer. You have to understand that Stalin got rid of the most cultured, educated people in the Soviet Union. Because if anybody thought for themselves, you were a threat to the communist regime, which was completely totalitarian. Stalin substituted bread with bullets, jobs with gulags, and paradise with purgatory. I can't tell you how much people suffered in the Soviet Union. From the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, through Stalin's death, Stalin became the leader of Russia in 1924. He died Purim 1953. One day I'll tell you the story. And then the communism only fell in 1989, 1990. 
But for 30 years, Stalin was a strong dictator, 1924 to 1953. Tufresh paid through Tufshin Yud Gimel. And I can't tell you, my parents grew up in the Soviet Union. My Zayda was arrested in the Soviet Union. So I grew up with a lot of history and a lot of stories of Russia. And if you had a mind, you were successful, it was likely you were sent to Siberia. And everybody started to talk about their glorious lives. They were popular. They were affluent. They were respected. They were influential. They had beautiful families. They had relatively nice, comfortable lives. They were successful people. And now, they had nothing. Nothing. They weren't even sure they're going to survive for much longer. And the actor started to cry, and the general started to cry, and the journalist started to cry, and the lawyer, and the doctor, and the, and the professor, and the novelist, all talking about, musing, and sharing the misery of what they used to have, and now they lost it all. They ended up with nothing. They're now pieces of garbage. Literally treated like pieces of garbage. One man wasn't sobbing. Reb Mendel Futafas. So he said one of the chevre, one of the non-Jews turned to him and said, I know why you're not crying. You probably were always a loser and you're still a loser. And when you got nothing... You got nothing to lose. You lost nothing. You didn't have anything before and you have nothing now. You have nothing to cry. But we had glorious careers and that's why we're crying. And Reb Mendel turned to them and he said, Chevra, speaking in Russian, actually I was a very successful businessman. Reb Mendel was an affluent person. He was a pretty wealthy Jew. And I lost it all. I also am married. I have a wife. I have children. And I miss them dearly. I lost a lot. I lost a lot. But I'll tell you why I'm not crying. Because my main occupation, my main job, I did not lose. What do you mean you didn't lose your main job? What what job do you have here? To to fell trees all day in a Siberian forest? And die from the cold? What job do you have here? He said, my main occupation before I was sent to Siberia was that I was a servant of Hashem. I was an Eved Hashem. And that job I still have now. Nobody took that away from me. The difference is in the software, not on the hardware. Before I was exiled to Siberia, I served God through running my business, giving a lot of charity, and living a very nice and comfortable life. Today, I still serve God. I serve God as a Siberian prisoner. Yes, the circumstances of my life have changed. But my main occupation, my identity, my dignity has not changed. Exactly the same position. I was chosen by God to serve Him. To bring a little bit of His light into the world. And I'm still doing that. Even though the circumstances have changed. That's why I'm sad. I'm pained. I miss my old life. I want to return to my family. I want to return to a normal life. But I'm not in despair. My soul has not been snatched away from me. My sense of inner resolve and dignity and confidence has not been taken away from me. Because who I was, I still am. And my primary vocation in life
I still maintain I'm a servant of Hashem in this world. I serve God. The Mishnah says at the end of Kedushin, I'm a chassid. I'm a Jew who works for Hashem. And that insight, that story by Remendel Futafas touches me very deeply. I'll tell you what I take of it. The circumstances of life changed. I wanted to be in Eretz Yisrael. I wanted to be in New York. I wanted to be in, uh, in, uh, in Italy. I expected to be here. I anticipated life to look like this. You know, everyone had plans. And part of the plans of the end of Adar and the beginning of Nissan of March and April and May was not to stay stuck in the house with every shul closed down. I personally have been giving shiurim every single day with large crowds. I'm here in the house myself speaking to you through the miracles of technology, which I'm very grateful for. But I'm sitting literally alone in a room and I'm taking questions through texts. <laughs> and that's the small stuff. And then there's serious challenges. People create trajectories, plans for our lives, our to-do lists. And then it's snatched away. You know, God caught everybody off guard. Hashem caught everybody off guard. But I want you to remember your core self you did not lose. Don't get stuck in the software. Don't get stuck in the circumstances. I was an Eved Hashem and I am an Eved Hashem. You were created to serve Hashem. You're like Rabbi Ruchim says, you're a messenger of Hashem. You're an ambassador of love, light, hope, healing, redemption. And you're still an ambassador of the Rabbi Nishalem, an ambassador of love, light, healing, redemption, Torah, Simcha, Muna, Betochen, Yiddishkeit, Yiras Shamayim, Avas Hashem, Avas HaTorah, and Avas Yisrael. That nobody, nobody, and nothing can take away from you. Yesterday Hashem wanted me to serve Him in one way. Today Hashem wants me to serve Him in a different way. Three weeks ago Hashem wanted me to serve Him in one way. Today Hashem wants me to serve Him by being in my home on 9J Court in Muncie and serve Him here. This is how He wants. And if this is how He wants me to serve Him, that's how I serve Him. Is it disappointing? Sometimes it's very disappointing. Is it painful? Sometimes it's very, very painful. Sometimes it's very frustrating. But don't forget who you are, why you were created. And remember, that is timeless. It accompanies you and it follows you throughout your entire life. I'm going to tell you an insight that was shared. I heard this from a Jew. His name was Reb Herschel Fogelman, Olav Shalom, And he told me. He said... That when the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebbe Yosef Yitzchak, the Rebbe Rayatz, ran away from Nazi-occupied Warsaw, he came to New York in 1940 and Pesach he spent in Lakewood. And during one of the Fabringens, during one of the gatherings, one of the Titian on Lakewood in Pesach, Pesach Tovshin 1940, this is Tovshin 1940, the Rebbe said the following insight. It says in Tehillim, we say it in Hallel. Ono Hashem ki ani avdecha. How does everybody translate it? Please Hashem, help me. I'm your servant. I'm your Evet. But there's something missing in the Pasuk. It doesn't say, please Hashem, help me. It just says, Ono Hashem, please Hashem, because I'm your servant. Something is missing in the sentence. Please, what? What are you asking for? 
Later it will say, Please help me, but here there's something missing. The Rebbe said, Take a look how Ana is spelled. Ana Hashem Ana is spelled Aleph Nun Aleph. What does Aleph Nun Aleph mean? Ana, please, I beg you, I plead with you. Ana Hashem Ki How is Ana spelled? Aleph Nun Hey. What's the difference? Aleph Nun Aleph means please. Ana, please, I beg you. Aleph Nun Hey means we're. Anna Selech, where are you going to go? Anna with a hey at the end doesn't mean please, it means we're. You know what David HaMelech was saying? Anna Hashem ki ani avdecha. Eibishter zogmir vu, val ich bin dein knecht. Hashem, tell me where. Tell me where you want me to be. And I'm fine. I'm your servant. I'm here to serve you. I am your ambassador in this world. Therefore, I'm invincible. Even if I walk in the shadow of death, I am not in fear and in panic because you're with me. Tehillim chapter 33. Tehillim chapter 139. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down into the abyss, I'm quarantined in the abyss. You're also here. Even if I'm across the sea, even there your hand holds on to me. Even the deepest darkness, darkness can't block you. Darkness can't eclipse your presence. I am always an Eved Hashem, just tell me where. So Reb Mendel said, yesterday he wanted me to be here, serve him here, today he wants me to serve him here. I know who I am and that identity is as powerful and invincible and therefore it gives me comfort, it gives me confidence, it gives me solace. At this moment, I want all of you to be able to look into yourself. Turn to Hashem and say, Tell me where. You want me to be here, quarantined? I'm here. Because I'm here to serve you, and this is how you want me and us to serve you during this time. We're going to do it with joy, with passion, with faith, with simcha, with trust, with confidence, with resolve, with courage. You can add any other adjective. I hope you took your English grammar today. You can add any other adjective you want. And to be very responsible to do what we have to do, not to Khalila spread this virus. Let me take questions from all the Tayyida Kindalach. Let me take questions. <clears throat> so, the story that you spoke, you said about Leipzig. According to Allah, did he have to give it back or not? Excellent question. According to the halacha, he thought he does not have to give it back. But the covenant of Rabbi Yitzhak al inspector showed him that he was making a mistake. He treated the woman's money as though it was her money and she gave up on it. And he said, no, she's a shliach. And her husband never gave up on it. She doesn't have a right to give up on it. That's the point. You don't have a right to give up on a life that doesn't belong to you. It's God's life and he never gives up. You also don't give up. Is the coronavirus real? 
the coronavirus is real. That's a virus is real. The issue is we know so little about it. We don't have all the testing and all the research and all the test statistics and medications and vaccines. We know so little about it, and that is part of the danger. Part of the danger is, you see, for thousands of years, people didn't know that viruses existed. You know why? We can't see them with our naked eye. You know how large this virus is? This virus, the particles of this virus are 125 nanometers A meter is around three feet. You know what a nanometer is? A nanometer is one billionth of a meter. One, take a meter, three feet, and divide it into a billion parts. This virus is 125 nanometers. You can't see it with your naked eye. These are called microorganisms. It's like a little living organism and it travels. And in order for it to replicate, in order for it to survive, it needs to attach itself to a living organism. A tree, a bush, an animal, a bird a living organism, and a person. It looks for a living cell, and that becomes its host. And the virus goes into the host cell, and it kidnaps the cell, and then it uses the machine, the mechanisms of the cell to replicate itself, and it spreads all around the body. And the body starts finding it. And we are going to have a program explaining what this means and explaining it from a Torah perspective, God willing, next week. Next week, join us, we're going to have... So... How much of it, we don't know all the details. That's what doctors all over the world are trying to figure it out. What we do know is that it's highly contagious. We do know that complete countries have been on lockdown because of it. We do know that some people have become seriously ill because of it. And unfortunately, places, especially in China and Italy, there have been many casualties. May God protect all the people in all of the countries. And therefore, we're trying to do whatever we can. The virus spreads very, very fast. And if a lot of, and people who are older can get sick and get very, very sick. And if it happens so fast and you have millions of people sick, the hospitals can't deal with them. But if the virus travels much slower, much slower, so then they can deal with every case that needs emergency help in hospitals and so forth. When we stay quarantined, when I remain isolated in my home, you remain isolated in my home, in your home. So if I have the coronavirus, if I have it, I'm not going to pass it on to other people. And if I don't have it, I'm not going to catch it. When we go out, even if we're just in the street, I go into a store, I touch a doorknob, I touch somebody's shirt, I touch somebody's food. And I can catch it. And then I bring it to other people. Or if you don't have it, I can give it to you. That's the advantage of being quarantined. Very good question. Can you address accepting change of plans due to all of this? Well, I think the main point is very powerful. It's very hard to make a change of plans. It's really, really hard. And we have to acknowledge the difficulty. Don't deny the emotions. Don't deny the pain. It's a difficult time for all of us. We're all in this together. And my heart goes out to all of you. I love you. You're so special, all your kinderlach. And we love each other. And it's a very difficult time for all of us. And this is where the power of Yiddishkeit is so powerful. Back to Reb Mendel's words. The software change, not the hardware. Don't let the change of plans infect your identity, your dignity, your simcha sachayim and your soul. Don't allow a sudden change of plans deprive you of the joy of life. The joy of life must remain. Why? 
because the change of plans are just different ways and opportunities to serve Hashem. But the core of who you are, an ambassador of God, an ambassador of infinity, no coronavirus can take away from you. And when you're connected to that, and you just realize the place changes, the circumstances change, the software changes, but not the hardware, you're in, you're, you're in a very, very good place. Ahuva, nine years old, who created God? <laughs> ah, Yahuva, you're such a delicious girl. Who created, who created God? You know what, Ahuva, listen. <clears throat> we have to do a session about this. And we're going to take th- these types of questions. I'm going to do another session again. Stay tuned with us. And uh, we'll do a session. But I don't want to ignore your question at all. So I'm just going to say one very short sentence. Very short, and I know it needs much more explanation, but I just don't want to ignore your question completely because this may have been on your mind since you're four years old, right? Ahuva, how long has this been on your mind? For somebody to create the world, if you know anything about our world, for somebody to create our world, this being has to be beyond time, beyond space, and beyond physical matter. And such a being doesn't have to be created because such a being is reality. It's the core of reality and the source of reality. We have to discuss this more. God willing, we'll do more programs and take these questions more. How could it be that the yeshivas shut down? Isn't it Torah that keeps us going? This comes from Moshele, Moshele and Mendy. Moshe Mendy, this is a wonderful question. How can we shut down the yeshivas when Torah keeps us going? What a beautiful, beautiful question. The Gemara says in Meseches Shabbos that the world stands on the Hevel Tinoikos Shal Beis Rabbon. The world stands on the holy words and the breath that comes out from Yiddish Kindalach. When you learn Aposik Chumash, when you learn Aperik Mishnayis, when you learn on Amit Gemara, when you learn a Sif and Shulchan Aruch, when you learn something of Torah, when you daven, when you say Tehillim, when you daven, the world stands on this breath. How can it be that the yeshivas closed down? The answer to this question, it's a wonderful question, excellent question, and I'm so proud of you, and let me answer the question. I'm going to give you an example, maybe a funny example. The Gemara says in Meseches Megillah, we're coming from Purim, you may have learned this Gemara. The beginning of Masech Megillah, I think it's Dav Dalet. Mevatlen Talmud Torah, We stop learning. If I'm a Rosh Hashiva, I'm giving a shear, we want to learn. But there's a minion to hear the Megillah, we stop our learning to go hear the Megillah. The Gemara says, even the Koyanim and the Beis Hamikdash had to stop their Avaidah to go hear the Megillah during the second Beis Hamikdash. They had Purim, they had to stop their Avaidah. Now you might ask a question. How can you stop the learning of Torah in order to hear the Megillah? I don't understand. Torah keeps us going. And the answer is, Torah is the one who tells us to stop learning in order to go hear the Megillah. The Torah itself that keeps us going is the one that tells us that sometimes it's time to do things differently. The Torah commands us, the halacha is, that pikuach nefesh, 
saving the life of even one person overrides all of the mitzvahs of the Torah. A Kayan Gadol could be Yom Kippur in the Kaidish HaKadoshim. But if there's a life in danger and he can save the life, he must drop everything and go run and save this life. The Mishnah says in Sanhedrin that saving one soul is like saving the whole world. And destroying one soul is like destroying the whole world. The Torah also tells us that we have an obligation to listen to doctors in order to be able to save lives and to protect our health. The Torah also tells us, this is a halach in Shulchan Aruch, that if God forbid there's a pandemic, there's a devil, there's a pandemic in a city, a person must quarantine himself. He must run away, he must go to a place where he remains safe so he doesn't catch it. And of course, in our case, there's nowhere to run because it's all over the world. There's nowhere to run. I can't go to another city that doesn't have it. And if I do, I'm bringing it over there. And that's why isolation is a halacha. So the same Torah that keeps us going tells us that there's certain situations where the author of the Torah, the Rebbeinu Shalom, says, now is a time, unfortunately, where Hashem wants a different shlichus from you, a different mission from you, where He wants you to be home. You remember when Moshe broke the luchas? Hashem said, Sometimes Hashem says, Thank you for breaking the luchas. That's number one. Number two, we should not stop learning. We're learning right now. It's a different type of learning. It may not be the same hours, and not be, not be the same environment, but Yiddish Kindalach are continuing to learn Torah everywhere. I know my kids' schools are going in full force. My boys are learning Gemara with their, uh, with their Rebbe's uh, from Chicago, Besifta. Two boys are sitting now and they're steiging in Gemara. My daughter is learning now Chumash or Halacha. My son is learning. So continue to learn. Make sure continue to learn. But how we learn, the circumstances, that itself Torah tells us. So the same God who told us that Torah protects us and Torah keeps us going also tells us we must listen to health professionals and we must do everything to save a life. And if not, we violate the Torah who sees human life as the most valuable thing in the world. Great question. Rabbi Jacobson, Ahuva, age nine. Oh, we spoke about Ahuva. Okay. My name is Dovi, and I am watching you. Thank you, Dovi, for watching us. Please come back Sunday at four. We're going to be here again. If the messenger is like the one who sent him, why then can't the messenger give up hope? Ay, 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 gewaldike question, a gemara kop. Lissakune, shedar ticho. I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> I am representing the one who sent me to be able to represent him, not to be able to define what the mission is. If you send me, you say, Rabbi Jacobson, I want to make you a shliach. You'll become bar mitzvah and you're going to make me a shliach to burn the chametz for you. Or you're going to make me a shliach to give tzedakah for you, to separate truma. You're going to make me a shliach. You decide what the shlichus is. I can't come and say, no, I think the mission should be this. Then I'm not your messenger anymore. Hashem says, I don't give up on you. I believe in you forever and ever. I represent Hashem as long as I'm representing Hashem. The moment I decide a different agenda, a different perspective, 
then I am not being true to myself. You know what it's like? Imagine your refrigerator says, you know what? I don't want to represent the electricity anymore that's flowing through me. I want to be my own person. And it asks you to pull out the plug. And you pull out the plug, you know what happens to the refrigerator? It's not here. <laughs> it doesn't work anymore. The whole refrigerator is the electricity. The power of the refrigerator is the electricity that flows through you. The power of the shliach is the energy of Hashem that flows through me. So therefore, I can't decide I'm giving up on my life. That means I'm disconnected to the truth that I'm part of infinity. You don't give up on infinity. You don't give up on godliness. You don't give up on beauty. I have a question. What should I do? I feel like I'm in a prison. What do you do when you feel like you're in a prison? I suffer with anxiety my entire life. I have agoraphobia. It's so hard to get around on my own. My parents passed away already and I still haven't gotten married. I feel so alone. I have friends. I have siblings. I did a lot of therapy. I'm still suffering. I always wanted to get married and have a family, but I can't do it. It's not happening. I dated for years. I don't feel happy. I haven't felt happy in a long time. I feel angry at Hashem. He's in charge. And my reality is so, so painful. I'm so, so sorry. And I would like to continue this conversation privately. You can email me, RabbiYY at theyeshiva.net. Rabbi YY at theyeshiva.net will continue the conversation privately. I don't think it's for this program. The only thing I would tell you is that some of us have a lot of deep anxiety and we have to respect that. I can't, I can't give you a few words and get rid of your anxiety. I wish I would be able to. I wish I would be able to tell you something that does get rid of your anxiety. I don't think we can always get rid of our anxiety. What we have to know is that we have anxiety, but we are bigger than our anxiety. The core of my neshama is not anxious. And that God is with me through my anxiety. I am larger than my anxiety. But sometimes I can't just get rid of my anxiety. And there is a painful reality there. But don't identify the anxiety with your essence, ever. Hanan el Shalom, welcome. How can you give up hope if you are in the place where you lost it? Excellent question. Back to the story. Because it was a public domain. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Let me ask you, Hanan Yeshalem, if you're walking, I don't know, do you know Manhattan? If you're walking on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, like 600,000 people walking, everybody with their cell phones, right? And you drop a $100 bill, <laughs> right? And a day later you come back, you think you're going to find it? It's a public domain. There's so many people. If you lose it in your little shtibel, in your little base medrash, you lost it in your classroom, you know all the people are there. They have a mitzvah vashava saved. If you have simonim, then you don't give up hope. If you don't have simonim, then you do give up hope because nobody's going to know it's you. Unless it's mamash, a tiny place where you could speak to everybody. But in such a public domain and with mostly non-Jews, she gave up hope. Very nice. You asked before why the man came to the lady to tell her that he found the money if he wouldn't give it back to her. Because he didn't want she should keep on looking for it. Okay. He was being nice. He wanted to avoid her another headache to continue looking. Zevi is five years old. Why were people sent to Siberia? Oy, 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 Zevi, if I would know the answer to your question, why are there people who are so... who... Who, who behave in such an evil and destructive way. 
Why? Hashem gave people free choice. And we have to fight with our Yetzirah and make sure that it doesn't take over our lives. But some people make terrible choices. Parai enslaved a whole nation. Haman wanted to destroy a whole nation. And Achashverosh was not too much better. Joseph Stalin was the leader of the Soviet Union for 30 years. The man was brilliant, but he was paranoid, paranoid. And he cared about human life less, less than you care about the dust in your bedroom. Less. Sometimes people can choose a horrific, horrific path in life. And that's part of our job. Our job in the world is to teach the path of goodness, to teach the path of morality. I count my blessings and remain positive as much as possible. But reality hurts me so, so much. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I want to pray for you. Please send me send me your name and your mother's name. I would like to pray for you. Rabbi YY at the yeshiva.net. Rabbi, this was not just for children. The growing ups loved it as much. I'm glad that you are a child in your heart. My name is Miriam. I'm 10 years old. Reb Mendel survived Siberia. Did they shorten his term or did he escape? How was he able to survive without breaking his heart? If I'm not mistaken, I think they shortened his term and he came out after t- around 14 years, I think after Stalin's death. After Stalin's death, a lot of people were emancipated. The Soviet Union was still a horrible place, cursed country, what the communists did there. But it was better than under Stalin. And I think he came out, how he survived. It was unique. Every person who survived was a miracle. I knew, I knew quite a few Jews who survived the Gulag for many years. I knew a Jew, his name was Lazer Nanes, Reb Lazer Nanes. He he survived, he was in the Gulag for 20 years. He wrote a book called Subota with a pen name, Avram Netzach. He was in the Gulag for 20 years. I knew other Jews who were in the Gulag for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. They survived, they had tremendous courage, tremendous resolve, and there was meaning in their life. You know, Viktor Frankl was a Jewish therapist, a psychologist, he was a student of Freud, and he was in Auschwitz, and he wrote a book, Man in Search of Meaning, and Viktor Frankl writes over there that he found that people in Auschwitz, the only ones who could survive were people who had meaning in their lives that transcended Auschwitz. It didn't mean they would survive. Six million Jews were killed, but it meant the only people who could survive, potentially, was people who had meaning outside of Auschwitz. And he was one of those survivors. An incredible, incredible insight. Benji, Benji from Manchester, United Kingdom. Welcome, Benji. Benji Solomon from United Kingdom. If we are meant to be shluchim from Hashem, why don't we have instructions? Benji, I love your question. Why doesn't he give us a manual? Benji, I have a secret. We do have instructions. It's called the Torah. Every day in Shemin Esther, we call Torah, Torah's Chayim. What does Torah's Chayim mean? Torah's Chayim means a guide for life. It's a map. 
You know, if you're going on a long journey, you don't remember the days before ways, before GPS. We used to take maps, and the map says, go here, go there. Today, Waze tells you, or, or, or uh, Google Maps tells you, make a right, make a left. Why? It's complicated. I could get lost very easily. Life also needs a roadmap. I should stay on the path. I should get to my destination. I should live a healthy life, a wholesome life, a happy life. What is the Waze? GPS, God's positioning system. We call it the Torah. Now within the Torah itself, there's instructions that relate to every person individually. That's why we need good teachers, good friends, good parents who can show us the map that guides all of humanity and all of the Jewish people also contains individual messages and instructions that help each of us in our own journey of life. Shalom, nine years old. Welcome to the program. If a husband and wife are like a team, why can the wife give up hope and accounts like the husband because they're a team? <laughs> Great question. I love the questions. Oy, gewald. I see why your teachers love you. You have great questions. Wow. The answer is because it wasn't her business. She knew nothing about it. She didn't want to go to Leipzig. It wasn't her money. It wasn't her business. It was his business. It was his money. He appointed her as his messenger. She was his shliach. Therefore, she could not give up hope. How did God create the world and why? How old are you? Five years old. Five years old. (laughs) Five years old going on 80. How did God create the world and why? Exactly how God created the world, you're asking the wrong person, because if I would know how, I would do it myself. But when we study the world, we know a lot about about how God created the world, meaning we know a lot of the mechanisms, the systems that Hashem used to create the world. How He invented those systems, it's because God, nobody can invent those systems. But when you study the world, you could see a lot of the tremendous mechanisms. For example, when you study your body, Eoiv says, from my flesh, I could perceive Hashem. You study the biology of a human being. I'm going to have a program next week. We're going to discuss how viruses work and how we fight viruses from a Jewish perspective. And that's going to be one example of the brilliant brilliant mechanism that Hashem used just to create the human body. And then you have all of the other living organisms in the world and then everything else on the planet and then everything else in the whole universe and cosmos. Why Hashem created the world? Ah, the question of all questions. That's a big question. And again, we have to leave it for another program, but I don't want to ignore your question. So I'm going to just give a very brief answer. One of the great reasons why Hashem created the world is says in the Medrash. Medrash Rabbah says in Parshas Nasai, and in Shir Hashirim, and in Tanchuma Parshas Nasai, Nis'ava HaKadosh Baruch Hu Liyos Loi Hashem created the world because He wanted you and me should be his ambassadors to make this world a home for Hashem. He wanted us to become his representatives and create a world filled with goodness, kindness, love. He brought us into a world that looks so fragmented. Everybody is separate and everybody thinks about themselves. And we would reveal Hashem Echad, that really we're all one. We come from one, and we're all one. Look what happened here. A little virus affected a person in Wuhan, China, and he sneezed. And all of your schools closed down, and you're listening to me now. 
We're all connected. We're all one. So Hashem created the world and He sent each of us into this world to take this world, to refine it, to revolutionize the landscape of planet Earth and to reveal the oneness and the love and the light that pervades it all, beginning with yourself. For you to realize that you are the manifestation of Hashem's light in the world. And this is, allows us the experience of a relationship with Hashem, of oneness with Hashem for ourselves, for our loved ones, and for the whole world. Excellent question. There's so much more to talk about. If we were supposed to leave the Beis for coronavirus, why did Rebbe Akiva have Rishus to teach Torah Barabim? Isn't it the same Sakana? Menachem. Why did Rabbi Akiva teach Torah publicly? He knew that the Romans made a decree against Torah. Why did it also endangered his life? Rabbi Akiva taught Torah and he was killed. Rabbi Hanina ben Tradian, you're talking about Bracha 61, Bracha Samachalov. What about Avoid the Zoriyat Ches? Rabbi Hanina ben Tradian was teaching Torah and the Romans burnt him. They should have all closed the Batei Madrashais. Excellent, excellent question. Wonderful question. The answer is very simple. When an empire and a regime stands up and wants to destroy Yiddishkeit from the Jewish people, the Torah says that sometimes we are obligated to have Mesiris Nefesh. Not always, but sometimes there are moments that we sacrifice everything we have for Yiddishkeit, for Torah, for mitzvahs, for Hashem, for our relationship with Hashem. Just like a father and a mother, your mother would sacrifice everything for her child. We are sometimes summoned to give up everything, even the gift of life for Hashem, because that's who we truly are. That is our essential relationship. The coronavirus is not coming from an emperor who's trying to destroy Torah and Yiddishkeit. The corona is not trying to shut down Jews who are learning Torah or davening in shul. The coronavirus is an illness that infects people. So imagine somebody, God forbid, has cancer, and their immune system is not good. So the doctor tells the boy, you can't go to yeshiva because you can get very, very ill over there. Nobody is going to tell him, we're gonna, we fought the Romans, we fought the Egyptians, we fought the Babylonians, we fought the Assyrians, we fought the Greeks, we fought the Persians, we fought the Russians, we fought the Germans. We're gonna fight the doctor too. <laughs> We're gonna fight the doctor. The doctor's not trying to destroy Torah. The doctor would love if you learned Torah. This is an illness that Hashem caused the person to have. And Hashem says, I need you to do everything to heal from this illness. The coronavirus is not trying to fight Torah, so we can say, we're not going to let him fight Torah. It's an illness that's now in the world, and we're trying to save lives by quarantining ourselves and learning in our homes, learning Torah in our homes. The coronavirus doesn't mind if you learn Torah in your home. The coronavirus simply travels from person to person. That's the idea. It's not a war against Torah. It's a virus that infects people and kills chas people who are senior citizens or have a low immune system. People who have problems with their lungs, people who have asthma, people whose immunity is compromised. And therefore the Torah says, 
we have to protect them. And if we go out and we're irresponsible and we say, we're not going to allow them to shut down Torah, what we're doing is we can have blood on our hands in the name of Torah, we're sacrificing the life of a Jew. So if I'm sacrificing the life of a Jew because I want Torah should survive, I'm doing it for Torah, for Hashem, that's Mesir Nefesh. But if I'm doing it for what? Because I want to be irresponsible. Because I'm going to be irresponsible and go against the Torah. Then a person can't do this. This is not sacrifice for the sake for the sake of, of, of Torah. The Corona is not trying to destroy Torah. Do you understand, my dear friend? This is an illness that we have to protect all good people from. That's why the Shulchan Aruch says, when there's an epidemic, you run away. But what if you have a base medrash? What about mysterious nefesh? You go learn somewhere else. They're not trying to take away the Torah from you. But you have to do what you have to do in order to keep people healthy and not, God forbid, endanger people's lives. I'm in a masifta. Why can't we be the why can't we be quarantined together and not leave yeshiva? Well, you could be quarantined together and not leave yeshiva. But somebody has to do laundry, somebody has to buy you food. Right? Somebody has to take care of you. Somebody has to cook. You, you need a place to sleep. You need somebody to take care of you. So, so people have to move around. The larger group of people, let's say your Masifta has 50 people together. 50 people together, even if one person got it, all the 50 people get it. Now, once in two weeks, you want to go visit your mommy or get food. Now your family gets it, Right? Even if it's 50 people and one person gets it. Are you going to remain quarantined 50 people together locked up in a room a whole time? And are you sure nobody has it? At some point, people are going to maneuver. People have to move. People have to survive. So the larger groups of people, the more danger it is. Because if one has it, then a larger group of people gets it. And then they're going to spread it to a much larger group of people. Right? If nobody has it, but one gets it. He's going to bring it to a group of 50 people. And then when they go out, they bring it to so many, so many more people. You see, to transfer this virus, you don't have to feel sick. You could feel healthy. You could be a young man or a young, a young boy or a young girl. You have the virus. You touch the doorknob of your grandmother's home and she gets the virus and she has for shalom is very ill, even though you didn't fall ill. So I could transfer the virus even though I don't feel sick. So that's the problem here. Whenever you have large groups of people and anybody goes out anywhere, it just transfers and transfers. And let me tell you how fast this goes. When people mingle, right? So let's say today, if I had coronavirus, I may have it, I'm not sure. I did dance with somebody who, was, who had coronavirus. So I may have it and I was in a shul where somebody had it. So I was exposed to it. I'm staying home. Like I hope all of you are. But let's say I have it, yeah? And I mingle. I, would, I will infect at least two people, okay? So tomorrow, two people have it. If, even if it's only me. Rabbi, why, why? Only me and I give two people. Chas v'shalom. The day after, yeah, those two people, it gets doubled. Let's say each of them gives it to two people. So the third day, four people have it. If you double each day that number, by the time you hit day 26 or 27, you know how many people have the virus? Around 500 million people. That's every single American plus another 200 million people. You heard what I said? Around, you could do it on a calculator or do it with a chessboard. Okay, One piece, two pieces, double it. 
four pieces, eight pieces, 16 pieces, 32 pieces. In the beginning, it doesn't look a large like a large number. You hit day 20, 21, 22, you hit around day 26, 27, around 500 million people. You come to day 30, or day 28, 29, you're dealing with almost a billion people. Remember, the last few days, it doubles crazy numbers. So imagine if we just all mingle around, yeah? Or even 50 people together in your masifta. But then you start going out. Somebody has to go out, right? Somebody has to bring milk. Somebody has to bring water. Somebody has to bring chicken. Somebody has to pick up something for Shabbos. You have to eat. Somebody has to go out. If there's 50 people, there's a chance that somebody has it. Now you go to a grocery store. You sneeze by mistake on a doorknob. An older man comes because he needs food. And he touches the doorknob. He touches his eyes. And he can end up in the ICU unit. You get the point? So if we mingle, every single American has it. Now, if a certain percentage is very ill, suddenly 2 million people come to hospitals, they don't have beds, they don't have doctors, they don't have respirators. This could be a terrible, terrible tragedy. In Italy, they had to choose who gets a respirator. They didn't have enough for everybody because it spread so fast because they didn't take it seriously. But here's the good news. I spoke to a friend of mine who lives in Florence, in Italy. And he said today, in his region, was the first day that the number didn't go up. Because they're on full quarantine. Everybody is home 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. They don't go out. Full quarantine. A friend of mine, a rabbi in Florence with his whole family. 24-7 in the house. He says, today, the numbers didn't go up. The numbers stayed the same. The first time. First time. It stayed the same. So you want very small units of people because people spread it all the time. And if it goes, it just doubles every day, you come to impossible numbers. But what happens if the virus spreads over many, many, many more months? So in the meantime, some people get it and they recover. Some people need emergency help and they should recover. But it's not so many hundreds of thousands or millions of people in one shot. And then... Many, many lives can be spared and be saved. Yisrael, I'm five years old. Why do we sing La Yehudim Haysa of Purim during Havdalah? Yehudim Haysa Aira, Haysa Aira, Aira, Vesimcha, Vesasa, and Vikar. Okay, it's a great question. And you know what? I don't know. I have to look it up. <laughs> but I think one of the answers is because every Mitzray Shabbos, we're going away from Shabbos. And whenever we go away from Shabbos, it's difficult. The six days of the week don't have the holiness, the beauty, the geschmack of Shabbos. That's why we smell the Psalmim. There's a special song that many Jews sing Mitzray Shabbos. Al-Tira Avdi Yaakov. Don't fear Yaakov. Shabbos ends. Sometimes a Jew fears. Hashem says, don't fear. So I think it's one of the reasons why Mitzray Shabbos, we declare, that even though we're going into a new week, we could still hold on to the light of Shabbos, the joy of Shabbos, the festivities of Shabbos, and the glory of Shabbos, especially as we're lighting a fire. But I will look it up because there's probably much more to it. Yosef is six years old. What are the things that you have to have Messiris Nefesh for? And what things do you not? Do you see what six-year-old Kindalach are asking these days, my dear adults, parents and teachers? 
I think we got to up the level of education. Children today understand a lot more than anybody thinks. Talk to them real. Talk to them about infinity. Give them the real thing, but only if you can give yourself the real thing. Very, very briefly, very briefly, these are the halachas in Rambam and in Gemara and in Shulchan Aruch. Generally, all mitzvahs get canceled out if a life is in danger. I eat on Yom Kippur, and I drive on Shabbos, and I can eat tray for food, and I can eat chametz on Pesach, and I could commit almost, I can violate almost every single mitzvah in the Torah if somebody's life is in danger. Right? That's why you have the Hatzola ambulance comes to a house on Shabbos, they take the person to the hospital. How can they do this? Even though they're not even sure he's going to die, even if it's a suffolk, if it's a doubt and a doubt, you're allowed to violate all the, almost all the mitzvahs of Torah in order to save a person's life. There's three prohibitions for which we have Mesiris Nefesh. Gili Arayas, Shvichis Damim and Avaydazar, Gemara Sanhedrin, page 74, Rambam Hilchis Yisoydi, Torah chapter 5, and this is the Halacha and Shulchan Aruch. Three sins, and that is to murder somebody. I'm not allowed to kill another person. I can't murder another Jew in order to save my life. Even though I'm going to save my life, but at that expense, I could, I could eat chametz on Pesach. I can do a lot of sins. But I cannot, I cannot murder another person. And then there's Gilei Arayis, which is committing adultery. Committing adultery would be usually a woman who's married and she goes to live with another, with another husband, which destroys the holiness of the family and of marriage, which is one of the holiest things in the world. And the last thing is Avaydazara. Avaydazara means idolatry, which is serving idols, denying Hashem, worshipping other gods. That's something for which the Jew has Mesiras Nefesh, sacrifices his life. How did Hashem let the coronavirus happen? Chaim Yoyna, nine years old. Ah, Chaim Yoyna. I don't know. I don't know. We live in a painful world. Until Mashiach comes, we live in a painful world. And it's very hard to understand a lot of the things Hashem does. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You know, think about it. You're nine years old. If you would take your three-year-old brother and put him in a yeshiva where the Rosh Yeshiva was giving a shear to 30-year-old brilliant people who know the whole shas, your brother would say, I don't understand the word and it's pretty boring because you can't expect his little brain to understand what this genius is saying. Even though your brother may grow up and be as smart and knowledgeable as him, it's impossible for the finite brain, a limited brain of a person to understand Hashem's infinite wisdom. If we understand anything, it's a miracle. Hashem's wisdom is infinite. His perspective is infinite. There are some things we understand, some things we don't understand. I don't know the reason why Hashem wanted the coronavirus to come now. What I do know, and this is maybe more important, is what our mission is. We may not know why, but we do know that there is meaning and there's purpose. Everything has meaning and purpose. And we have to utilize it as an opportunity to grow, to grow individually, to grow as families, to grow as communities, to grow as the Jewish people, and to grow as humanity. We're all 
part of God's world. So we have to use this opportunity to grow and know that there is meaning. Will we one day know the full meaning of it? Perhaps, but I don't know. Baruchke, there are two paths. One, everything is for the good. Perhaps not immediately, but eventually good will come out from it. That's true. Because everything comes from Hashem, there is goodness in everything, there is meaning in everything, there is purpose in everything. But sometimes we don't understand it. And sometimes it looks so painful. And it is very painful. I'll give you a simple example. If you go into a hospital and you see a surgeon cutting open a person's body, but you grew up in a desert. You never knew about hospitals and operations. What are you going to do? You're going to scream, murderer, murderer. Little do you know that the surgeon is saving the person's life. So sometimes we don't see the full picture. We don't understand everything. It doesn't mean it's not painful. A surgery is very painful. And it doesn't mean that people did not make mistakes. People make mistakes. It does mean that in everything there is a spark of goodness. There is meaning. There is opportunity. There is purpose. And sometimes we can't know the reason why. What we have to ask ourselves is, how can I grow from it? What can you, Baruchel, do at this moment in your life to be able to become a happier person, a better person, a deeper person? Kinderlach, we're going to take a break for now. Thank you so much for all these wonderful, wonderful questions. I was planning to go for 40 minutes, 45 minutes, but with all these questions, I didn't want to stop it. And we're all having a great time together. It's so special and precious and holy to be with you. It's inspiring. I love you so much, and I bless you. Stay healthy. May Hashem give you and your families and all of Klal Yisrael only good health among all good people in the whole world. And use this time well. I told you, fabreng with your families. If you could, dance with your families. Celebrate life with your families. Be thankful for the blessings. And look forward to all the opportunities that we have in store during these very, very interesting times. And one day you're going to look back and tell your grandchildren, ooh, let me tell you about this Meshuggah virus, this crazy little creature that you can't see came from China and turned the whole world over. Ooh, how it taught us the power of one little creature, the power of one person, the power of one handshake and the connectedness of the whole world. And I'm going to see you back here. We're going to have a children's program Sunday, 4 p.m. on theyeshiva.net, featured on the homepage. This video you can also replay. It's going to be on theyeshiva.net. And we're going to have another live one Sunday at 4. Again, you could text in all of your questions. If you want, send your questions beforehand. So I'll know what to talk about. You could send your questions beforehand. Now I have to get the number, 845-477-4707, 845-777-4707. You could text your questions. You can email rabbiyy at theyeshiva.net. I'm going to see you here again in Hashem, with good spirits, with simcha, with emuna, with bitachin, Sunday at 4 p.m. 
In the meantime, I have another shear here live for adults at 9 p.m., but I see you guys are quite intelligent. So those of you who tell your parents you're going to be up on time, you could come 9 o'clock p.m. Tomorrow morning, we learn Machshava and Chassidus at 7 in the morning, Gemara at 8 in the morning. Sunday afternoon, 4 p.m., we have a children's program. I can already wish you a beautiful Shabbos, a meaningful Shabbos, an uplifting Shabbos, a healthy Shabbos, an inspiring Shabbos. Stay quarantined in your home. Be responsible, but keep those spirits high. May Hashem help the world, heal the world, save the world, and ultimately bring us out of this crisis. Gesundheit, Freilicheit, and give us ultimately the Gula Shleima Bimheira Biamenu. Amen, Amen. Thank you very much. Have a beautiful day and a beautiful evening. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.